0: evening Galatians chapter 3 verses 13 and 14 some of my favorite verses in all scripture Paul writing to the church says in verse 13 of Galatians 3 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree here's the reason why in verse 14 that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now look also at verse 29 of Galatians 3. And if you be Christ's, that means if you've been born again, if you've asked Jesus into your heart, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now notice that the Bible says, and Paul is writing to the Galatians, and there's some things that are taking place in the Galatian church that, uh, that Paul's trying to correct, Apparently after he started the church there, um, after some period of time, there were Jews that had come in, religious people that had come in, religious uh, um, part of the Pharisees and and so forth in in Jerusalem. They had come to the region of Galatia and they had told the Galatians that uh, they understood that Paul was preaching Jesus and redemption in the blood of Jesus, that's all well and good, but you still have to keep the law of Moses. And so Paul is trying to correct that wrong thinking, wrong teaching that, had, that, uh, that the Galatians had received, and he's talking to them, talks very specifically to them, about the fact that they, as Gentiles, were heirs of Abraham's blessing, and that took place before they ever started trying to keep the law of Moses. He gets on to him pretty specifically in, uh, in chapter 2, talking about how foolish it is for them To think that after they've been born again, just simply by believing in Jesus' sacrifice and the shedding of his blood and his resurrection, to think now that they need the law of Moses to add something else to them. So he comes to the place where he identifies specifically what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus had done for them and us as well, and how they should be operating. So he says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now what does the Gentile church know about the curse of the law? These are things he must have made him familiar with when he was there. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, talking about the substitutionary work of Jesus. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. Jesus, through the the crucifixion, becomes the sacrifice or the payment that was due from mankind to God in his divine system of justice so that man could avoid and avert... The spiritual death that has held us in bondage since Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden. He says, so that, here's the reason that Jesus was made a curse for us, verse 14. So that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through faith. Not through the law, not through keeping rules and regulations, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Then he hammers the nail home in verse 29. He says, and if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul is identifying by the Holy Ghost at the direction of the Holy Ghost the place that God wants us to hold and the benefits he wants us to have as children of God now if you'll remember if you'll turn back to Exodus chapter 15 you know that uh, Israel went in bondage you remember how Joseph was sold into slavery and he became the prime minister of Egypt because he interpreted Pharaoh's dreams and all of his family came down to live in Egypt And over a period of time, the Pharaohs were not kind. They had forgotten Joseph and all the things he had done for the the Pharaoh that he served. And so the children of Israel became slaves. They spent 430 years as slaves in Egypt. But the time came when God raised up Moses to deliver them. Now, you remember the story. You remember how the the 10 plagues took place? Because when Moses went before Pharaoh and said, God said, let my people go, Pharaoh starts talking about, well, who's your God? I don't know him. Why should I listen to him? And then the plagues begin to take place. Now, every one of these plagues corresponds to one of the gods of Egypt. And so the plagues weren't just a matter of God's finally, been, he's been holding up his anger for a long time, and finally he gets to show it towards somebody. But instead, it was to show that the power of God was greater than all the gods of Egypt, all the different things and idols and so forth that they worshipped. And he showed himself greater than everyone. But do you remember the 10th plague? The 10th plague was where the angel of death would come and take the firstborn of every household. God told Moses how to avoid that angel of death um, affecting the people of Israel, the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And that was for him to put blood on the doorposts. Now you remember also that they were supposed to roast a lamb and eat it, the Bible says, for the strength of their journey. Well, the angel of death came, just as God said, and it killed the firstborn of every house in Egypt. There was great lamentation and great sorrowful moans and groans throughout the whole nation. And so Pharaoh finally says to Moses, go, I don't ever want to see you again. So Moses takes the children of Israel. They ate the the lamb for the strength of their journey, and they started off with all these millions of people to leave the land of Egypt. Uh, the estimates that I've seen made by people in uh, historical settings and so forth was that the children of Israel were a crowd of anywhere from 2 to 7 million people. If you take just a low number, that's a lot of folks. And the Bible says that when Moses led them forth out of Egypt, it said that they came forth with silver and gold. You remember how they went to their neighbors and said, pay us. We've been working for you for 430 years. Now pay us. And the people of, of Egypt were so glad to get, see them just the thought of them getting out of here and going somewhere else and all these plagues stopping and everything. They gave them everything they had. So the Bible says they spoiled the Egyptians. They came forth, the scripture says, with silver and gold, and there was not one people person among them. Now for a, a nation of people, 2 to 7 million people, assuming the estimates are correct, pick the one you want. Whichever number suits you. It doesn't matter to me. But for a crowd that size, people that had been slaves, For all of their lives, for generations, to come forth without one feeble person. That means not one sickly person, not one weak person among them. Something had to have happened. That's not the normal condition of a nation that's in slavery. They're not the healthiest people around. They're usually the sickest. They don't usually have access to to the right care or treatment or foods or anything else that would keep them from getting sick. But the Bible says, tells us in several places where Israel kept the Passover and God healed the people. So when they come out of Egypt, you remember the story how they got to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's changed his mind. Now he's angry because his son was killed during the, the Passover. And so he, just, he tells his uh, armies to go destroy the people. Well, they came to the Red Sea. They're cornered, they've got mountains on one side, mountains on the other side, and the Red Sea behind them, and Moses, at the God's direction, stretches forth his rod and parts the Red Sea. The children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, went over on dry ground, and then when Pharaoh's armies tried to chase after them, the waters came together and drowned the most powerful force, military force, on the face of the earth at that time. Well, everybody's happy just as loud as they were moaning and groaning about what are we going to do we're all going to be slaughtered now they're on the other side of the jordan river of the uh, red sea excuse me they're on the other side of the red sea and their mortal enemy is dead man they're rejoicing they're singing songs they're raising their hands they're joyful and rejoicing and so forth but then the bible says beginning in verse 22 of exodus 15 the very next thing that happens, it says, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea. Again, these are the descendants of Abraham. And they went out of the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Most uh, Bible scholars believe that that means poisonous. It certainly can, but the word that's used there doesn't uh, mean that that's the only thing that it could be. It could be mean that it just didn't taste good too um to sulfur added to be able to drink, but we don't know for sure. And the people murmured against Moses, verse 24, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried unto the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statute and an ordinance, and there he proved them. Now statute and an ordinance means that God set down the way that it is and always will be. He's not just telling them something that applies to them and nobody else. He's saying, this is how it works. Now, this is always the way that it works. It's always the way that it will work. They just didn't know about it yet until God told them. So here's the statute and an ordinance that he proved them with. He said, if thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and will do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put, literally, allow... None of these diseases upon thee which have come upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now, folks, this is the first time God identifies himself to the children of Israel. First time. And he identifies himself as the God that heals thee. I am the God that heals thee. Jeho- Jehovah Rapha, I am the healer. So you've got to understand that healing for the physical body was once a very important part of the blessing of Abraham. And at least at some time, at some point in time, God cared a lot about healing for the physical body. Now, I know a lot of people think that things have changed, but God can't change. If God once cared about the healing for the physical body, then he always cares about healing for the physical body. If it was once God's plan for the children of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham... To receive healing for the physical body. Then he always wants that. And even further if it was once. If healing was once healing for the physical body. If that was once part of the blessing of Abraham. That was to come on the church. The Gentiles. You and me. Anybody that believes in Jesus. Then it always has to be. Always has to be. Now the reason I went into the. the uh, uh, Information about the Passover. Is that the wording God uses. I am the Lord that healeth thee. It's a, uh, it's a continuous action verb that he uses in that statement, which means God is saying, I healed you before, I'm healing you now, and I'll heal you forever. Well, the only thing that we have any record of or any, anything that would suggest a healing work or any kind of supernatural work from God toward Israel, uh, the children of Israel, descendants of Abraham, prior to this point is the Passover that they ate along with putting the blood of the lamb upon the doorposts. What I'm telling you is that the children of Israel prior to the Passover were not the crowd of people without any feeble among them. It was the eating of the Passover lamb that brought healing to their physical bodies so that the next day when they left Egypt, when they came out of Egypt, they came forth with silver and gold and there was not one feeble among them. God's simply saying, I'm the one that did that. You people know the change that occurred in your bodies. You people know the healing that occurred in in many households. So that overnight, the people changed from, at least some of the people changed from a weak and sickly bunch that had been deprived nutritionally as well as every other way, I'm sure. Broken down bodies into healthy bodies. When he said, I am the Lord that healeth thee, the wording has to mean, by definition, the, the terms that he used, has to mean that it's something that was done already, something that is done presently, and something that will be done in the future. I am the Lord that healeth thee. Now fast forward 40 years. The children of Israel have disobeyed God. They've, uh, Through their unbelief, they've failed to take the promised land like, they, uh, like God wanted them to. And so that generation dies out everybody from the age of 20 and up dies in the wilderness but in Deuteronomy chapter 28 they come to the place where Moses is declaring to the people giving them the last instructions before they go in under Joshua's command and Joshua's leadership to take the children of Israel to take the promised land where the children of Israel will take hold of and possess the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 28 The first 14 verses talk about the blessings of God. If you keep his commandments and do what's right in his sight, then this this is what will happen. But in in verse 15 of Deuteronomy 28, he starts talking about the curses. And the rest of the chapter is about the curses. It shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake you. Cursed shalt thou be in the city, and cursed shalt thou be in the field. Cursed shalt be your basket and store. Cursed shall be the fruit of your body and the fruit of your land, the increase of your kind and the flocks of your sheep. Cursed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and cursed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall send upon thee cursing and vexation and rebuke and all that thou settest thine hand unto for to do until thou be destroyed and until thou perish quickly because of the wickedness of thy doings whereby thou hast forsaken me. Uh, You can't read these things without making the comment that uh, Dr. Robert Young, the author of Young's Analytical Concordance, which was uh, primarily used in in the previous generation until Strong's Concordance came out and now it's more popular than uh, than Young's is. But uh, nevertheless, Dr. Young was um, was the foremost expert on the Hebrew language and the second-foremost expert the the Greek language during his lifetime and he said this concerning the things uh, that the King James translators put and uh, some of the verbs that they used and so forth just like here where it says God will send upon you vexation cursing and rebuke and talks about God sending sickness and different things like that well that doesn't line up with the character and nature of God as identified in the rest of the scripture for example God cannot He's, he's God. He never changes. He's only one way. He can't be making people sick and healing them at the same time. He just can't do it. The Bible specifically identifies that there's no turning. There's no shadow of turning with God. God never changes. So if God's in the business of making people sick, it's impossible for him to be the one that's healing too. Can't do it. Well, we know Jesus was sent to heal people. We know of all the healing miracles that took place in Jesus' ministry. And Jesus told us that he came to show us the Father. He said at the end of his life, just before he went to the cross, he that's seen the Father, he that seen me has seen the Father. Which means everything that Jesus did, he did as an example to us of how God operates. Well, Jesus never questioned whether somebody would be healed or not. He never prayed about healing anybody. He healed everybody that came to him immediately. So if that's the way Jesus is, if that's what Jesus is showing us about the Father, then it's impossible for some of these scriptures that we're going to read in Deuteronomy 28 to mean exactly what they say. Here's where Dr. Young comes in. Dr. Young said in the Hebrew language particularly, there is a a permissive verb that the English language doesn't have. Now it's also important, I think, for us to understand that where it was certainly easy enough and uh, possible... For the translators to translate it with a permissive tense or permissive action in these verbs, the King James translation is what's called a transliteration. It's not just a translation, it's a transliteration, which means it's as close to a word-for-word translation as the translators could make it. So when they were faced with the, the, the choice, and I don't know which way they would have gone, I don't know what they believed about God, Believing uh, in healing in the day that the King James translation came out was probably pretty rare, I would think. And uh, church history certainly, or the, uh, the history of the Bible certainly would bear that out. But regardless, the translators were faced with a choice. Do we say that God will send these things or do we say God will allow them to be sent? And apparently the word-for-word translation was so important for them, it was so much a part of their mission to translate this for the king, uh, uh, at the king's orders, that they chose the causative verbs instead of the permissive verbs to be translated. So here where it says the Lord will send upon the vexation, rebuke, and, and so forth, it means he'll allow it to happen. Notice that it's a, the result of them breaking God's law and breaking uh, God's statutes that he gives them, his commandments, that he gives them through Moses, which we would know of as the law of Moses. But the translators translated these things in a causative sense rather than a permissive sense. Well, that hurts some people's understanding of how God operates and who he is. God never is the one making anybody sick. And in fact, he said that if we'll keep the laws of God, keep his laws and keep his commandments, we don't even have to pray about it. He'll keep us well. He'll take sickness away from the midst of us. That's who God is. He's the God that heals us, not the God that makes us sick, not the God that's waiting for us to do wrongs and trying to put sickness and disease on us. I like one thing Brother Hagin used to say. He said, if God was going to make people sick, where would he get the sickness from? Sickness is always of the devil. Well, you think he's going to borrow something from, from the devil to use? Not a chance. So anytime you see in, the, in verses like this, where it's translated in the causative sense, it's because the translators chose A word-for-word translation at the expense of the real meaning. The Lord shall allow upon thee cursing, vexation, and rebuke. Verse 21, the Lord shall make or allow the pestilence cleave unto thee until he has consumed thee from off the land whether thou go to possess it. The Lord shall allow thee to be smitten with a consumption, with a fever, and with an inflammation, and with an extreme burning, and with the sword, and with blasting, and with mildew, and they shall pursue thee until thou perish. And thy heaven that is over your head shall be brass, and the earth that is under thee shall be iron. We don't want to read the whole thing. Notice verse 27. It says, The Lord will smite thee with the botch of Egypt. A lot of people think that's leprosy, but we don't know for sure. And with the hemorrhoids, he's talking about hemorrhoids, and with the scab and with the itch, skin diseases, where thou canst not be healed. The Lord shall allow thee to be smitten with madness and blindness and astonishment of heart. And thou shalt grope at noonday as the blind gropeth in darkness and shall not prosper in your ways. And thou shalt be only oppressed and spoiled evermore. Um, skip down to verse 35 the Lord shall allow you to be smitten in your knees and in the legs with a sore box that cannot be healed from the, top of the, from the sole of thy foot and to the top of thy head um, down a little bit further verse 45 moreover all these curses shall come upon thee and shall pursue thee and overtake thee till thou be destroyed because you hearken not unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded thee. Skip down with me to verse 58. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, he's talking about the curse of the law, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God, then the Lord will allow your plagues to be wonderful. Now, the wonderful doesn't mean a good thing. It means overwhelming. He'll allow your plagues to be overwhelming and the plagues of your seed, even great plagues and of long continuance and sore sicknesses and of long continuance. Moreover, he will allow to be brought upon thee all the disease of Egypt, which you were afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Notice verse 61. Also every sickness and every plague, which is not written in the book of this law, then will the Lord allow to come upon thee until thou be destroyed. There are uh, 14... Uh, different diseases that are identified and specified in this 28th chapter, the last half of the 28th chapter. And God is saying, Moses is telling them on behalf of God, that not only are those 14 part of the curse of the law, but every sickness and every disease, whether it's mentioned or not, is a part of the curse of the law. Remember our start, starting point, Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. He did this so that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles and we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So again, folks, we have to conclude that since the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, are being given these commandments, that Moses is is making them aware of what God expects as far as obedience to his word, And the consequences of disobedience to his word and his commandments. We have to recognize that at one point in time, healing for the physical body was really important to God. At this point in time, when Moses is speaking these words in Deuteronomy 28, healing for the physical body was a vital part, a vital part of the blessing that God wanted to come on the descendants of Abraham. And the only thing that could mess that up is disobedience on their part. Well, as we've said before, God never changes. So if it was ever the intent, if it was ever God's intent for healing to be a part of the blessing of Abraham, then it's always going to be a part of the blessing of Abraham. Because God doesn't change that. Well, let's see what Jesus said about it. Turn with me to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, we'll start in verse 10, it says, and he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman which had a spirit of infirmity 18 years, and was bowed together, and could in no wise lift up herself. Now, we don't know exactly what that means. The language is a little bit difficult, because the word infirmity here means, it means sickness. That's not the case every time the word infirmity is found in the King James, there are sometimes when infirmity is, is spoken of or translated, and the word literally means pains. But here is one example where the word infirmity is translated, or the word that's used is translated infirmity, and it literally means sickness. Well, what is the spirit of sickness? Does it mean that there's an evil spirit present that's enforcing this sickness? We see what her condition is. She's bound together and could in no wise lift up herself. That means. Her, her view of life is the top of her shoes. It means she's bent over in such a way and locked in place that she doesn't see the world around her. She sees the top of her feet. So here's this woman with a spirit of infirmity 18 years. And Jesus... He Swinney Caesar, verse 12, Jesus saw her and called her to him and said unto her, Woman, thou art loosed from thine infirmity. Now, the word loosed is the same root word that we get our word redemption. The word that's used throughout the New Testament. Literally, he's saying, Woman, you're redeemed from your infirmity. I want you to realize that redemption and being loosed are virtually the same things. God's plan of redemption, Jesus' work of redemption, his redeeming work is to set you free. Well, free from what? Jesus said, woman, you're loose from your infirmity. What does that mean? Does that mean the evil spirit has to leave? See, if there's an evil spirit present, Jesus doesn't deal with him whatsoever, doesn't address him in any form. He just ministers to her, the redemptive work that he was able to do here on the earth by showing us the character and the nature of God through the anointing that came upon him when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. He simply speaks. And he says, woman, you're loose from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. Now, we would have to conclude that when he laid hands on her, there was a transference. Otherwise, why tell us that he laid hands on her? What purpose would there be for the Bible to give us that detail if there was not something that was transferred? Doesn't say anybody felt anything. You remember in Mark chapter 5, the woman with the issue of blood began to say, If I can just touch his clothes, I shall be whole. And she touched his clothes, and it says, In straightway she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Something went out of Jesus into her that she felt. Doesn't say anything about that here. But she got just as big a miracle as the woman did in Mark chapter five. The woman with the issue of blood. The transference comes through physical contact, but it's not necessarily a physical feeling. It's not ne- necessarily something that you or I or anybody else can feel. Sometimes it does happen that way where if somebody feels something. But it's not about the feeling. And you can't judge what happens by what you felt or didn't feel. The transference takes place in a supernatural way through the contact, in this case, through the contact of Jesus' hands upon her body. So many times people are trying to judge what God does or what they got from God by what they felt or didn't feel. And that's a mistake every time. So Jesus laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. And the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation. He got mad about this. Because that Jesus had healed on the Sabbath day. And he said unto the people, There are six days in which men ought to work. In them therefore come and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. Can you imagine the gall that this guy had? He just watched Jesus heal this woman She's been this way for 18 years It doesn't say she's visiting from out of town So we have to assume that that Everybody in the synagogue knows who this woman is Including the rabbi The ruler of the synagogue And this guy has the gall To say that Jesus did it on the wrong day The wrong day of the week Well Jesus Answered him And said, I want to make sure that we walk in love here and say everything kind and and gently. The Lord then answered him and said, you hypocrite. Only time Jesus really got mad was with the religious people. Common people, people that just didn't know Jesus was kind and gentle with them. But when it came to religious people, he got in their face and he told them what was what. How can you tell if somebody's a religious person like that? They're the ones that are always going to be fighting against eating. They fought against it then Jesus' day. They, fought it. they fight against it today. So Jesus said, you hypocrite. Does not each one of you on the Sabbath day lose his ox or his ass from the stall and lead him away to watering? And here's Jesus telling us and showing us the will of the Father, showing us what God's like. And ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, lo, these 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Jesus gives two reasons why she ought to be loosed. He gives two reasons why their Sabbath day traditions could and should be overlooked for the welfare and the benefit of the individual. The two things he says, we'll take the, the second one first. Satan had bound her. Satan had kept her in this condition, this bowed over condition for 18 years. We don't know if it was something that progressed to the point where after 18 years, that's the, the place that she's at, or if she's been this way from the beginning, with just, a, the, just as severe when it began as, a, as when Jesus gets there. We don't know. But what we do know is that Satan's been working against her for 18 years. So Jesus' position, his attitude, which we have to accept since Jesus came to show us the Father. He that's seen me has seen the Father. If this is Jesus' attitude towards sickness, as recorded in Luke chapter 13, it's God's attitude towards sickness too. And it's not just a one-time thing. God's no respecter of persons. If this is Jesus' attitude toward this woman, then it's got to be Jesus' attitude and God's attitude toward everybody that's dealing with sickness and disease. Otherwise, we're going to have to tear out the pages that say God's no respecter of persons. But for the Bible to be true and accurate, then God wants the same thing for you and me as he wanted for this woman. And he has to be just as willing to provide it for you and me as he did, as Jesus did for this woman. Otherwise, the Bible's untrue. Well, what is the other reason that he wanted her to be free? Notice he says, ought not this woman being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound, though these 18 years be loose from this bond on the Sabbath. What does that tell us? Well, if we remember what we read in Exodus chapter 15, where God established himself, past tense, present tense, and future tense as the God that heals us, us being the children of Abraham, us being those that are heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed? So he's talking about you. Then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Heirs of what promise? Jesus says that part of the promise includes healing for the physical body. Deuteronomy chapter 28 shows us that sickness and disease is a part of the curse of the law that Galatians 3.13 says we're redeemed from. So healing has got to belong to the children of God. Got to. Got to. Ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan is bound though these 18 years. God doesn't want you bound by sickness or disease or by any other thing that's the work of the devil. In any form whatsoever. He wants you and me to be free. Think about what that means. That means our redemption is a perfect redemption. Our redemption is a complete redemption that frees us in every respect. From the work of the devil Jesus said it this way who the son sets free is free indeed the word indeed means in every respect it means absolutely it means completely so the redemption that came to you and me through the shed blood of Jesus through his death burial and resurrection is a redemption that frees us completely absolutely from every work of the devil Well, the the curse of the law is identified in Deuteronomy chapter 28, the last half of the chapter, way more than the last half, from verse 15 through verse 63. Identifies what the curse of the law what the work of the devil is against the people of God who fall into disobedience. Which means God wants you free from every bit of that. There's financial blessing identified in Deuteronomy 28. There's certainly physical healing identified. We've looked at that specifically There's family blessings that are identified in Deuteronomy 28. All these things that are identified as a part of the curse of the law. The blood of Jesus was shed and has been presented in the heavenly Holy of Holies for an eternal sacrifice, an eternal redemption for you and me. Every one of those things that the curse talks about is stuff that you don't have to be bound with anymore. Ought not this woman. Here's Jesus saying as a representative of showing us who God is and what God's attitude toward things are, here's Jesus saying that God's attitude and God's belief and God's position is the children of Israel, the descendants of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, those that are in Christ Jesus, ought to be free. Ought to be free. They ought to be free. I think we should agree with him. We ought to be free. Brother Hagan told a story. I love this story because it, it points out so specifically the love of God and the work of God and how He does work. Brother Hagan said that it was a church that he went to that he'd been to several times before. Uh, the pastor was his friend, and there were other people in the, in the church that were ordained ministers that were friends with him as well. And so, after the, one of the morning services, they went to lunch uh, with this couple. That he had known, he and uh, Mrs. Hagen had known for a number of years, and uh, they were ordained ministers. Their parents uh, were pastors of, uh, that they were that the Hagens were acquainted with as well, and um, uh, or at least her parents were. The others, the other side of the family, her husband's parents uh, weren't known by them. But anyway, she's uh, they're sitting at lunch, and she said something to Brother Hagen about uh, Brother Hagen. You being here has got me all confused. And Brother Hagin said, no, I didn't didn't confuse I didn't bring confusion to you. You were confused before we got here, and the truth of the word just showed it up. So he said, what's the problem? She said, you said in your preaching that he quoted from John, 1 John, the, uh, the first letter that John wrote to the church. He quoted that if a person hates their brother, then they're a murderer, and they don't have eternal life in them. Well, in the course of uh, quoting that verse or referring to that verse, Brother Hagin said, that means mother-in-law too. And everybody laughed, you know. Everybody gets kicked out of making a little joke about that and so forth. He said, well, yeah, I said that. What's the problem? She said, I hate my mother-in-law. So he strung her out a little bit and said, well, if you really do hate your mother-in-law, then there's no eternal life in you and you you're, that's it. You're headed for hell. She said, but I was... Born of ministry parents. I was born in a church parsonage. He said, I don't care if you were born on the altar. If you hate your mother-in-law, there's no eternal life in you. And so he let her go about as far as he could. He could see that she's starting to get distraught over this, and he said this. He said, I want you to do something for me. He said, I want you to look me right in the eye and say, I hate my mother-in-law. And at the same time, check down on the inside of you and see what happens. So she looked him in the eye and said, I hate my mother-in-law. He said, what happened on the inside of you? She said, something down there is scratching me. He said, well, sure, that's the Holy Ghost. That's the Spirit of God that's trying to get you to walk in the love of God that's been shed abroad in your heart. So she said, well, what am I going to do? He simply said, act like you did love her because you do. Not because you feel like it, but act like you would if you really did feel like loving her and treat her like that, because the Bible says the love of God's in your heart. Well, she did, and uh, a couple of days later toward the end of the week, and whenever it was, she was having some people over to their house, and so she asked the Hagens. they were off from preaching the next day, took a break on Saturdays, and so she asked the Hagens to come, and, and Brother Hagen said the Lord told him to, to tell her, yeah, that they would come, which was very unusual for him, it wouldn't be something he would normally do. And so they went to their house and there was a group of people over there and her husband's parents were there, or at least her mother was, along with sisters and whoever else in the family was there and had been invited and so forth. And this woman that just a couple of days before had said, I hate my mother-in-law came to Brother Hagin and she said, Brother Hagin, you were exactly right. I don't hate my mother-in-law. These are lovely people. They're wonderful people. I just haven't been walking in love. But now I am, and I want to thank you so much for helping me to see this. Well, the next week they start the the second week of the the meetings, and Brother Hagin gets a call from the pastor, and the pastor says that this woman, the same one that said she hated her mother-in-law, but now found out that she didn't, their daughter, I think a 13-year-old daughter, was having some some kind of seizures. Now she had been to the doctor over this. They had taken the little girl to the doctor and it had been an, an ongoing or a recurrent thing throughout uh, most of her life. And the doctor diagnosed it as epilepsy and he said, and he was one of the foremost people in that area or that region of the country uh, in this respect, the doctor said that it was the worst case he'd ever seen in 30-some years of medical practice. And so... Brother Hagin, they were just about ready to go to the church uh, for the meeting. And so Brother Hagin said, uh, uh, told the pastor, all right, we'll swing by there on our way. Uh, of course, they wanted Brother Hagen to come and pray for the child and so forth. They get in the car, and Brother Hagen starts driving to the home of this uh, person that, uh, that he knew, where the little girl was. And he said the Lord spoke to him, and he asked everybody else, did you hear that? He thought it was audible to, as far as he was concerned, or to him it was an audible voice. But the Lord said, I don't want you to pray for the child. I don't want you to say a prayer. I don't want you to touch the child. I don't want you to minister to him in any way whatsoever. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to say to the mother, in the Old Testament, I commanded my people to walk in my statutes and obey my commands, and I would take sickness away from the midst of them. In the New Testament, the law of love supersedes the commandments of God, or the Ten Commandments, So if you're walking in love, you're an heir of the same promise of sickness being taken away from the midst of you. So tell the mother to say, Satan, I'm walking in love. You take your hands off my child in Jesus' name. Well, they got there and Brother Hagin told them what the Lord said. He explained to them that in the Old Testament, it was about keeping the law of Moses. And if they did, the, the sickness would be taken away from the midst of them. But in the New Testament, the law of love is the only one that we have to keep. And so as soon as he got it out of her mouth, mother, say this, Satan, take your hands off my daughter. I'm walking in love in Jesus' name. He said, I no sooner had gotten it out of my mouth, she turned to where her daughter was. She pointed her finger toward her daughter and said, Satan, take your hands off my child. I'm walking in love in Jesus' name. Brother Hagin said, the, the, anybody that was there, there were several people that were already gathered together along with the Hagins. He said, everybody that was there saw that as fast as you could snap your fingers, this seizure had ceased. It stopped. Just stopped. Brother Hagen said that he saw this woman again some 12 years later. By that time, the daughter would have been grown and on her own, pretty much at least. And he asked the mother, did you ever have another problem with that? She said there was one time in those 12 years, there was one time when it tried to come back on her. And Brother Hagen asked, what did you do? She said, I did the same thing I did the first time. I said, Satan, I'm walking in love. Take your hands off my daughter. And it ceased. Now, what is so precious about this story to me is the place where so many people get hung up on the, on the experience. Like I'll see a lot of people will hear that story and then they'll think, yeah, but I'm not walking in love. Well, neither was she two days before. She had just started walking in love toward her mother-in-law since the time or during the time that Brother Hagen is holding the meeting in that church. So whatever the situation that you and I might find ourselves in, whatever steps we need to take or adjustments we need to make to step back over into love, it's not something that God requires of us for 10 or 12 or 20 years before we get some benefit out of it. As soon as we make the adjustment, we're back in the place where the blessings of Abraham belong to us. We're back in the place where God's attitude is the same towards you as it would be toward this woman in Luke chapter thirteen. You ought to be free. You ought to be healed. You ought to be delivered. You ought to be free from every aspect and every part of bondage and work of bondage that the enemy brings. You ought to be free from things that you might be addicted to. You ought to be free from things that hold you in bondage in every respect. You ought to be free. For the same two reasons that this woman was. The thing that holds you back is the bondage of the devil and his power has been defeated by the victory that Jesus won through his sacrifice. Secondly, if you're Christ and you're Abraham's seed and an heir according to the promise, it belongs to you. It'll never not belong to you. We might be in situations occasionally where we take ourselves out of the place to receive it by taking a step outside of love but there's a fix for that and it's a simple thing to just repent seek forgiveness from the Lord for it and start walking in love once again folks there's another thing about walking in love that a lot of people don't seem to get walking in love does not mean walking according to your feelings if walking in love was uh, walking according to your feelings then we would only walk in love toward the people that we felt good toward are good about. But you walk in love by faith. No matter what you might feel towards somebody, you seek to do good for them. Walking in love does not mean having warm, fuzzy feelings toward everybody all the time. Let me tell you a story. When I was, uh, the year before I went to Bible school, this would have been in about 1979. Um, well, no, it would have been 1980. My dad died in 1980. It happened after that. My dad had remarried. My mother and dad had divorced when I was a senior in high school. And he had remarried. And um, I didn't have much dealings with, with either her or him, really. I wasn't too impressed with her, but I didn't care. You know, It didn't affect me so much either way, one way or the other. But when my dad died, he had purposely set things up, and this is stupid, this is a really dumb way to do it, but my dad had 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 a, a real bad experience with his parents, and he saw his sisters, he had two other sisters, there were three of them in his family, and his two other sisters and their husbands really did some underhanded things when it came to my grandparents' possessions and money and inheritance, whatever you want to call it, stuff they left behind when they died. And, uh, and my dad got the short end of the stick. No two ways about it. He got the short end of the stick. And because they used some legal means and maneuvered, did some legal maneuvers to do it, he was really, really, really against having his will or his estate go into probate. And so he set it up in such a way that it could avoid probate. Well, I, I'm not a legal expert, and I don't know too much about about these things, but I know that it put her in a position, his second wife, it put her in a position to distribute things according to however she saw fit, legally, however she saw fit. Well, he thought, I assume, from some things that he said to my brother, never said anything to me about it, but from some things that he said to my brother, I assumed, or I assumed that he assumed that she'd be fair about dividing things up the way that he intended and what was his before they got married and went to the, my brother and I and that kind of stuff. Well, that's not the way it went at all. She wound up taking everything that was there and it, was, it wasn't a whole lot of money, but it would have been, I don't know, $60,000 maybe to me and, and my, another sixty to my brother. But she came and told us very specifically that my dad didn't want my brother and I to have anything that he had and that she was directed by him, and, and, and we knew this was a lie from the beginning, but she was directed by him to divide everything that was left between her and her children. Well, you know, you're in a place where your dad's just recently died. It's not like I had a real close relationship with my dad. He was hardly ever around, but he's still your dad. And so there are feelings there and, and so forth. Well, when she told us that, I never wanted to kill somebody as bad in my life. Now, you laugh. It wasn't funny to me. I'm telling you the truth. I almost immediately began thinking how easy it would be to get rid of this woman. But then it would be left to her children, so that wouldn't do us any good anyway. And so it became something that we, uh, my brother and I tried to, to uh, get some legal advice to see if there's anything that could be done about it. And long story short, nothing could be done. His avoidance of probate was the very thing that gave her um, a legal right to do whatever she wanted to do, however she wanted to do it. And so this was, um, my dad died in May, just a couple of days before his birthday in 1980. And so here I am, I'm trying to believe God, I'm trying to act on the Word. No, virtually nothing. haven't been to Bible school yet, just have listened to some of Brother Hagin's tapes, one tape series, one six tape series. And that's all I know about the word. That's, that's it. That's the extent of my knowledge. I didn't know anything about growing in love. I certainly didn't know anything about walking in love by faith and that type of thing. And so I'm really upset about the way things have gone. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not even true. What she said wasn't true. And so I'm going through life Now wondering, what am I going to do? How am I going to live with this? How can I look this woman in the face again? And all this kind of stuff. And I'm going down the road, driving on uh, Highway 65, Interstate 65, in the middle of downtown Birmingham. And I'm just complaining away. I'm in my car talking out loud. I'm by myself, so I'm talking out loud. I don't care what I look like. It doesn't matter. Nobody can hear what I'm saying outside the car anyway. And so I'm just telling the Lord what's wrong with all this stuff. Just telling him letting him know in case he missed anything I made sure he was informed and as I'm talking to the Lord I stopped or slowed down and finally said Lord what am I supposed to do he said walk in love first time I can remember hearing the voice of God clearly he said walk in love well I knew enough by then I'd listened to enough of Brother Hagin's tapes to know that the Bible talks about walking in love and love is the new commandment or the only commandment of the new covenant. And so I knew it's got to be God. The devil's not going to tell me to walk in love. I knew it had to be God, but I still don't know how. I said, all right. I I stood about it for a little bit and another minute or two went by and I finally realized that I'm not going to be able to fight against this. I've got to agree with God. So I said, okay, Lord, I walk in love. But how do I do that? And the Lord said very simply, very plainly, second time I know that I've heard his voice in my life, he said, pray for her. And that just sent me over the edge. And so smart Alec me, I said, pray for her. How in the world can I pray for her? And then I had an idea. I said, oh, okay, I'll pray for her. I'll pray she gets hit by a bus. <laughs> That's praying for her, Lord. And God didn't argue with me. He didn't say anything. Let me calm down a little bit. And then I'm right back where I was before. I've got to pray for her. So I asked the Lord, I said, what do I pray? He said, pray that I would bless her. I said, Father, that's really not what I want. I don't want you to bless her. I don't want her to be blessed in any way whatsoever. And the Lord answered me back and said, no, but the love inside of you would. So I started. Now, folks, you should, I wish I had a video of that first prayer I prayed. Because I am gritting my teeth. There's no formality to this thing whatsoever. I'm simply doing what God told me to do, and that's it. So I gritted my teeth and I said, Okay, Lord, bless her in Jesus' name. And that was it. That's all there was to it. Every time that I would think of it, I knew exactly when the thoughts would come to me about how wrong she had done and what hardship it was going to cost me and my brother and, and how it would affect our futures and all this kind of stuff. I knew that, that I was supposed to do the same thing. Every time I thought about it, instead of getting mad about it, I would catch myself and say, Lord, I pray that your blessings would come upon her. I did that for about three weeks. And, and I was diligent in it, folks. i got to tell you, it may not have happened every time, but 99% of the times it was there. Every time I thought about her and every time this anger started to rise up, I'd say the same thing, Lord, I ask for your blessing upon her. And after three weeks, you know what happened? God answered my prayer. He blessed her. And that made me madder than ever. I thought that God understood that I didn't really mean it when I was praying it. (laughs) But that's not how the love of God works. He did bless her. And I'm left doing the same thing every time I think about the situation, every time I think about how unfair it is, every time I want to complain to God about how unfair it is. I know what I'm supposed to do. And so I kept doing it. I kept doing it. I kept doing it. Folks, I want to tell you, I wound up, uh, what would it be, three or four months later, going to Bible school in Tulsa. And before that time came, where I left for school, I had prayed for her so much that it really seemed like what she had done had happened to somebody else, and I just heard the story. There were no feelings of anger about it anymore. There were no fits of rage like I had prior to that. It was like it was just a story I heard that happened to somebody else and I was relating the story. There were no hard feelings about it from that time on. So I know what it is to pray for somebody in faith. I know what it is to walk in love towards somebody in faith. My feelings, if you had told me three months earlier, That that would happen in the middle of me being mad about the stuff as it took place. If you had told me that in a matter of three or four months I wouldn't have any feelings about this, any hard feelings about this, any feelings of anger or hate or anything else, I would have told you you are out of your mind. Because there, for a week or so, I was consumed with it. But by simply praying—not even a prayer I wanted to get answered just by doing what the Bible says to do. I think back on it now, and I have to think real hard to remember some of the details about it, because it's like it happened to somebody else, and I just heard the story. That's what walking in love is supposed to be. Not according to our feelings, but according to the love of God. There was a, a point in time, and this was a real turning point, I almost forgot this detail, There was a real turning point that took place when after I started praying for her and God started blessing her. And just by coincidence, I happened to hear of all the blessings that were coming her way. You know how that works. There was one time where I started to take it up again and get mad about it. I did say, Lord, this is not fair. It's not fair. It's not right. And just for a moment, he opened my eyes So I could see her the way that he does. I realized that she's on her way to hell. She thinks this money's going to make a difference in her life, and it won't. I saw her as somebody that deserved my pity and my prayers. And from that moment on, I had no trouble with the hard feelings. From that moment forward, every time something would come to my memory... Every time something would rise up, and the devil makes sure you remember this stuff. Every thought that came, I remembered what the Lord opened my eyes to. And I began to pray for her in earnest. I began to pray for her because she really needed help. The money that she stole from us meant nothing in comparison to what the Lord had revealed to me. And I realized that it was the same way what he showed me was the way that he saw her. And how much she needed help. She became a project of mine. A prayer project. A couple of years later I heard she got saved. And it's so much better. It's so much better for me knowing that anything that I've gotten. And anything that that, that was accomplished. Anything that God brought to me. Came from him rather than money left from my dad. It's so much better. When Abraham said to The king of Sodom, after bringing back all the people and stuff, he said, I don't want to take even a shoestring from you because I don't want you going around saying that you made me rich. So much better to let God do it. Amen? Amen. Galatians 3.29, And if you be Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's redeemed us from the curse of sickness and disease. He's redeemed us from the curse of poverty And he certainly has redeemed us from spiritual death. And that's what makes up the curse of the law. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy toward us. Lord, we thank you that you deal with us according to your righteousness and not according to our behavior. We thank you, Father, that you love us with a great love. We thank you for the promises that you've made to us. We thank you that we're heirs of the blessing of Abraham. Thank you, Father, that healing is ours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.